Jen's going to ask a how and a why question. It, it assumes the what is already taking place in your life, and that assumption is correct. But it's not going to ask what, it's going to ask how and why. The question is not what you worship. Um, the assumption is that you do worship. And that's a true assumption. You're all worshipers. It's not just the religious people uh, according to the world standards that are worshipers. It's, it's everybody. It's hardwired into your being. It's part of the fabric of your creatureliness that you worship. The question is not what you worship. It's, it's how and it's why. And the answer, I'll just give you the upshot of the chapter right here at the very beginning. For God-honoring, that's Christians. For God-honoring worshipers, that's people who've given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ who understand that He died for our sins. He rose again to justify us. That is to make us right in God's sight. Because we couldn't save ourselves, He did for us what we couldn't accomplish on our own. This passage says the way we worship, how, and the reason for which we worship, why, might surprise some of us. How do Christians give God His due? How do we worship Him? Here's the surprising answer uh, maybe to most of us. It's the way I treat you. I honor Him by what I do to you. And that's how you honor Him also. It's how you treat your fellow man. Especially as children. But then the why is really giving rise to the how. How I treat you is rooted deeper down in the issue of love. Love to God is expressed in love to His people. That's the point of the passage. I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll look at verses 1-13. through 13. That's the whole chapter. Hear the Word of God. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. And this is God's voice coming into your ears. Let it sink deeply. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do eat, nor the better, or pardon me, we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. 
But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat the things sacrificed to idols? Verse 11, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. This is God's Word. Let's ask again for His blessing as we consider this truth. Go from where you're at right to the throne of grace where Christ sits. Father, this is your opportunity to show off, to speak, to make yourself known, to pull back the veil, to let people see you. And we ask that that would be the effect in these next few moments. That we would all be captured by Jesus and captivated by His glory. And that the resounding effect of that would be selfless, Christ-like love to our brethren. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage falls into three parts. Maybe your Bible divides it into those three paragraphs. Verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 6, and verses 7 to 13. They really all deal with the same issue, but he lays the groundwork in the first part, opens up the motive in the second part, and brings the application in the third part. The first part could fall under the theme of being known by God. Look again at verses 1 to 3. Being known by God. Notice that phrase falls at the end of verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. And Paul's doing something very deliberate in this chapter. As you can see in verse 1, chapter 8 is also a response to a question that the Corinthians sent to him in their correspondence. In chapter 7, they had questions about marriage and singleness, divorce and widows. We dealt with that last week. Here in chapter 8, he's dealing with the next question that they sent to him. And this question, what about food that's sacrificed to idols? And Paul opens by saying, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. But the first thing he wants to establish is whether or not we are known by God. Now what an interesting way to come at the question. The question beneath their question. They're saying, okay, there's a bunch of idols in the city of a bunch of temples in the city of Corinth. And this temple is dedicated to that so-called deity and this one to that deity and this one to that deity. And they all make sacrifices. Many of them make blood sacrifices. So they're bringing in the animals, they're they're uh, slaying them and they're offering their blood to their so-called god. Now there's a carcass left. And on occasion, they hold big festivals and feasts. And they're cooking all this meat that's premium. You know, they only offer the best uh, of the best to their so-called God. And, and in their festivals, it's sold or given away. Uh, if it's sold, it's at a ridiculously discounted price, and it might be free. Can we go eat that meat? That's their question. 
But there's a question beneath their question. And that is, what liberties do we have in Jesus? And how are we free to exercise those freedoms in the practical details of life? Romans 14 deals with a similar question. I thought it was the same until I started studying for this week, but it's very similar. It's not identical. Here we're dealing with food sacrificed to idols. There we're dealing with clean and unclean foods, which are similar but but not exactly the same categories. Well, to begin answering this question, Paul immediately shifts the focus. He reorients the question. He shifts, shifts the focus to the main issue. The issue is not what liberties do Christians have. The main issue is, how does love govern my behavior? So you can see right in verse 1, he shifts it, doesn't he? He shifts from Christian liberty, food sacrificed to idols, to Christ-centered love. The way the shift happens is by pointing out first the difference between knowing and loving. Look at verse 1 as it ends. We know that we all have knowledge. Well, that might have been, and I think that it probably was, one of those slogans that the Corinthians used, like in chapter 6. Food is for the stomach. The stomach is for food. That was one of their slogans. Here's another one. We all have knowledge. And Paul's wanting to point out the difference between knowing something and being motivated by love in your knowledge. The answer that Paul gives to that slogan, should, uh, do, all, do we all have knowledge, and, and, and to the point, should Christians eat a certain thing or do a certain activity, Paul binds up his answer in one word, love. Now I agree, as I suggested just a second ago, that this verse, like chapter 6, is one of those slogans. It probably came in the letter to Paul, and in their, their question, hey, can we eat food sacrificed to idols? We know we all have knowledge. Paul's probably lifting that out of their letter, and he's giving them the right response. Their so-called knowledge had led them to make a seismic error. It had led them to overlook the good of their brothers and sisters. So to deal with the question, Paul points out 10 times in 13 verses a focus on knowledge. We all have knowledge. So nine more times he says, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know in 13 verses. But there's a problem with our knowledge. It's a twofold problem and he deals with it right here in the opening paragraph. In verse 1, there's one of the problems and in verse 2, there's another problem. Verse 1 says, knowledge makes arrogant. That's a problem but love edifies. The second problem is in verse 2. Knowledge can blind us from knowing what we actually ought to know. Let's look at the first problem. Verse 1. We all have knowledge, period. Yeah, but knowledge makes arrogant. Let's just put this practically. We all know what this smells like because we've been around it too many times and more than we can count and unfortunately we've all been part of this problem. And this is what it smells like. You know what it's like. Nobody likes to be around a know-it-all. Nobody. It's so easy to become such a person though, isn't it? Uh, We have have words and categories for this today. The the guy who mansplains everything and, and tells everybody everything about everything. 
even if he himself has never even considered it before he starts thinking out loud. If the truths that we know and the knowledge that we have is not subjected to God, then we're going to distort everything we know for prideful ends, selfish ends. So Paul argues in this chapter that true knowledge, real knowledge, is pregnant. The knowledge that comes out is impregnated with the wonderful virtue of love. It's embedded with love. The kind of knowledge that builds up others and ultimately glorifies God is not the kind that just tells everybody else why they're wrong and what they should understand, but it's the kind of knowledge that's motivated for their good and for God's glory. If the truth that we know is not focused on deeper communion with the all-knowing God, the omniscient God, and aiding our brothers and sisters to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ more intimately, then the very knowledge that we offer will become a source of pride for us. Knowledge makes arrogant. The second problem is, in verse 2, our knowledge can blind us. That's what arrogance and pride does. But he says, if anybody thinks he knows anything, he hasn't yet known what he ought to know. Does this mean that if you ever studied something carefully and learned a little bit about it, that you actually don't know anything about that thing? No. It's not what he's talking about. He's not saying nobody knows anything, period. He's saying that some of us have a knowledge that on the inside of it is rotten. On the outside, it's good. Might might even be true. But on the inside, it's void of love. It's that kind of knowledge that's actually destructive to others, not productive. It doesn't build up, it tears down. Jeffrey Wilson said, such a man's whole way of knowing is radically defective because it lacks love. Think about the Pharisees. They could run circles around all of us when it comes to Bible knowledge. But all of their knowledge, though true material, was defective and destructive to those whom it was conveyed. Why? Because they missed love. Love to the author of the book. Do you get it? If everything you eat is first dipped in poison before you take the bite, then it doesn't matter how succulent that portion is to your taste. It doesn't matter how well it was prepared. It doesn't matter what type of spices that it was marinated in overnight. The entire bite is contaminated. Why? Because of the arsenic in it. Some people's knowledge is like that, isn't it? They know stuff. They truly know it. And what they know is true. But it's dipped in poison. It hurts those who swallow it, including themselves, because it lacks love. First John sums up this point by saying, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the first problem with loveless knowledge is that it will make you proud, and the second problem is that it will poison you and others. So, under this first heading, known by God, He deals with the problems of knowledge and then he turns his attention to the difference between knowing things and being known. This is beautiful. Oftentimes, this is verse 
2 and 3, oftentimes when a person is busy teaching everybody else all the factoids that they know, it's really, it's really, see if, the, see if you think this is true. It's really because they are insecure. It's a defense mechanism, isn't it? They want to come off as knowledgeable. It's easy to say they. We want to come off as knowledgeable. And because of our pride, we don't want anybody to expose us in an area that we're weak. So what we do is keep the conversation on topics that we feel well-versed in. And for the people who are especially insecure, we try to make sure that the topic of conversation remains on the subject. And we especially like to pick out those topics that we think we've studied and thought about deeply that other people may not have even yet entertained. Now, for whatever reason, seminary students, and I'm not exempt from this, uh, when that was my lot in life, can be the worst about this when it comes to Bible knowledge. They get around their senior adult Sunday school class at their church, and they may try to get their prideful ball rolling, and they ask subtle, not so subtle questions. What do you all think about supralapsarianism? Paul just says, look, this person has not yet known as they ought to know. It's not motivated by love. Paul turns the tide on all of us by showing that there's a mighty difference between knowing and being known. We've said around here over the last many weeks because the Bible just keeps bringing up this same point. The most exhilarating place in the universe is the place we're all scared to go. The most thrilling and exhilarating place in the universe is to be fully known and fully loved. We think that people won't love us if they know us. Who knows the real you? My guess is there's not more than a handful of people that fit in that category. The deep, real you. Do those people still love you? Do you see it? As far as I'm aware, this may expose my biblical ignorance here, but as far as I'm aware, this is the only verse in the whole Bible that explicitly answers the question, the question of how can I climb inside the mind of God, not tell all of you what I know that He said, but climb inside His mind and discern whether or not He knows me. How can I know that God knows me as His child? Do you see it? If anyone loves God. They are known by Him. That's it. This is the truth that Paul reorders all their questions around. Now there's a lot of verses in the Bible that clearly teach the fact that God only knows certain people. Well now we're already bumping up against a problem for those of you who know something about the teaching of Scripture. You see, the Bible teaches unequivocally and unashamedly that God knows everything about you. It was prayed in our prayer meeting earlier this morning and it wasn't prompted by me. That's called the work of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 139. 
God knows everything about you. He knows that you're all sitting and that I'm standing. He knows your thoughts from afar. He wove you together in your mother's womb. Jesus taught that God knows the number of hairs that are on the top of your head. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives beneath your thoughts. He knows everything about everything all the time. And as the old adage goes, which is thoroughly true, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He knows everything about everything all the time. Now there's a lot of verses in the Bible though that teach us that God only knows certain people. So how can He know everything and only know certain people? He, the one who loves God is known by Him. Well first, let's lay the foundation and then answer the question. The Old Testament is replete with this theme. The very first psalm ends with this phrase, the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. The prophet Nahum was speaking into a devastating situation in his day. And into that context, he wanted the people to understand Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. In the New Testament, the authors can't get this theme out of their mouth and out of their writing. In Galatians chapter 4, there's a glorified comma in the middle of the verse. And it says in Galatians 4 verse 9, Now that you have come to know God, comma, or better yet, to be known by God, why do you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Do you hear this theme? We could look in 2 Timothy 2 and see that the foundation of heaven has a seal and the seal reads, the Lord knows those who are His. We could turn to Matthew 25 and the parable of the ten virgins. Five lost, five saved. Five prudent, five foolish. The prudent have oil in their lamps. Upon the return of the Savior, they're able to trim their lamps and see their king. The five foolish, the unsaved, run off to the city because they squandered all of their oil. And as they're returning, they see the bridegroom leave with the regenerate. And they say, what about us? Wait. To which Jesus responds, Matthew 25, 11, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And one of the most sober of all the passages that carries this same theme, many of you have been bothered by as have I over the years. Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount. King Jesus says from the top of the mountain, giving the law of God, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? We could add, in your name go to church, in your name read my Bible, in your name get baptized. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So do you see it? That's just a sampling. God knows some. And He doesn't know others. How can we climb inside the mind of the Almighty and discern if He knows us? We sing little choruses around here and they're so wonderful. We should sing them more often. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. But have you, have you ever sang the chorus? Jesus knows me, this I love. 
for the Bible tells me so. Praise God for 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, because as I said a moment ago, it's the only verse in the entire Bible that answers the question, how can I know if He knows me? Praise God for this verse. He doesn't want you to be left wondering. It doesn't say, did you pray your prayer? It says, do you love Him? It's a response. It's a ricochet of seeing His magnanimous love for you because you see, I said earlier, the most exhilarating place in the universe is to be fully known and fully loved. And God knows you inside and out and loves you the same. And if you love Him back, indeed, if you see His love for you, you will love Him back. And if you love Him, if you love Him, if you love Him, guess what? He knows you as His child. The question Paul answers flips the Corinthians' questions on its head. They wanted to know what to do with all their superior knowledge, but he wanted them to see the satisfaction of being known by the all-knowing God. If anybody loves God, they're known by Him. So in the remainder of the chapter, Paul shows how this relationship of love between us and God and His intimate knowledge of us as His precious children is to govern our entire life in our relationships with our brothers and sisters. So first is being known by God. Second is being sustained by God. This is verses 4 through 6. Now in these verses, verse 4, 5, and 6, Paul focuses the Corinthians' attention back upon the God they love and by whom they are known. In verse 4, he speaks of God alone. In verse 5, he speaks of God's galore, and in a verse 6, he speaks of our God. First, God alone, verse 4. Look at this verse. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. Are you ready to listen on a Sunday morning? Especially those of us who find this kind of moment very routine. Easy to check out, isn't it? You ready for this? This verse teaches us the foundational truth beneath all other truth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Are you ready for the truth? You've heard it a million times, but can you hear it fresh as if for the first time? Can you be riveted again by the reality? There is Only one God. All other so-called gods are like the thirsty man in the desert who crawls his way over the next sand dune and sees what he thinks in the valley is a palm tree surrounded pond of fresh water. But the closer he gets, the further away it goes because it's a mirage. And I'm standing before you on the basis of God's Word to say to you that every other so-called God is in fact a mirage. I mean Baal and Dagon, Aphrodite and Zeus, Allah and Buddha, the ancestral traditions of the animistic deities of the savages, and the 33.5 million deities of the Hindus are in fact a figment of the imagination of men. They're a vapor. 
They don't exist. On the basis of verse 4, Christians must humbly assert no other God is out there. There are not two or ten. There are not ten million. As the verse concludes, and I quote, there is no God but one. God alone. But under this second point, sustained by God, he deals with verse 5, the apparent reality, very obviously being exploited and promoted in the city of Corinth. Verse 5, God's galore. How can you say God alone and then out of the next breath say God's galore? This is how. The truth of verse 4 doesn't negate the fact that mankind is made to worship. That's why I told you at the beginning, the question is not what, it's how and why. It's not do you worship? It assumes that reality. Mankind is made for worship. And if we do not worship the one true God, we're not left as a vacuum to be void of all worship. It means by necessity that we will create another idol in our mind or our heart because we must worship. All the people who slept in this morning, be sure, are worshiping. There are gods galore. Verse 5 says, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, gods galore. While Christians know deeply, foundationally, at the core of our faith, there is one true God. We also know that pagans have not only created idols, but in their minds they're convinced of their deity, their divinity. To them, they exist and their God is real in the recesses of their mind. Perhaps Paul was thinking of the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah wrote really in a sarcastic way but with a broken heart of the plethora of deities that surrounded the land in Isaiah's day. In Isaiah's writing, yes, sarcastically, but also with brokenness and Paul perhaps thinking of what Isaiah was talking about when Isaiah wrote, one man takes a log of wood he extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes. Outlines it again with a compass. Shapes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in his house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak. He raises it for himself among all the trees of the forest. He plants a fir tree. He makes And the rain makes it to grow. Then... It becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of these trees and he warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes, from another part of it, a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this, this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire, but the rest of the log he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and, enjoy, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. That sounds foolish, doesn't it? Let's just cut the box in half and worship half and warm ourselves with the other half. It's foolish, isn't it? But what we often fail to see is how equally foolish... How equally insane is it to worship all these so-called deities? You know what the Corinthians were worshiping? 
the God of gnosis, knowledge. They have become proud and arrogant. Until Christ returns, there's going to be no stoppage of the invention of new idols. But although there is only one true God, there are indeed gods galore. And every single day, you're going to have to wake up with fresh breath in your lungs and new sound on your lips, and may God give us grace to say, as for me, my house, we will serve Yahweh. And that's where Paul goes next. Not only one God, God alone, not only the plethora of so-called gods, but then he deals with our God. Verse 6. Paul turns his attention back to the believers and Back to our God. Yet for us, verse 6, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. What a verse. What a verse. The whole of the Christian religion squeezed down into a few lines. What a truth. What a rock on which we can stand. What power by which to live. You see, this is what's known as theology proper. This is the queen of all thoughts. The highest thing you could ever conceive in your mind to think rightly about God. Here's what Paul's doing in this little verse. He's drawing attention to the blessed Trinity under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing in verse 4 about one God and in verse 6 about the one God, the Father, and the one Lord Jesus Christ. Look at these all of life encompassing statements in verse 6. I believe many are right when they point out that there's in this one verse creation and redemption language. Creation, there's the source and the end for which all things are created. All things exist, you see it, from the Father. His plan, His design. The master architect. And the end for which all things are created, we exist for the Father. From Him, for Him. That's creation. Let me draw a line between that and the rest of the verse and say to you, if that's all it said, it would be terrible news. Because you would know why you exist, but you would thoroughly lack the power for which you exist. You would not have the capacity to praise the God who made you if the rest of the verse weren't true. Because not only has He created from Him and for Him, He also redeems by His Son through His Son. Creation exists from the Father, but we're told here the means by which creation exists, by the Son. Do you see it? All things exist by Him. Genesis 1.1 is radically true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And while that's radically true, it's just not everything the Bible has to say about creation. As you continue to read the narrative, you find out in places like Colossians and Hebrews and on and on we could go that it was God the Son who made all things and through whom all things came into existence, who sustains everything in the cosmos. So everything exists from the Father but through the Son. And we've said it around here, yes, to be provocative because sometimes we hear these truths and we just can't think about them again because we think we know them. So we say it like this. Jesus made His own mom. Everything's created by Him. The Gospel of John begins in the first three verses by saying, nothing came into being apart from Him. Zero. He's the means. So the source is the Father. The end is the Father. But the means is the Son. But now here's the power. We exist 
for God. That's in the verse. How will we please Him? How will we honor Him? How will we fulfill the end for which we were created? Here's the power. We exist through the Son. Jesus Christ is the only adequate supply upon which we can draw to live the life that pleases God. All of life is encompassed in this one verse. If we dwell here and meditate here, in fact, live here, we will find that Christ is the power for us to live for the glory of the Father. This is where Paul takes us in the next part of the passage. Having laid down this glorious foundation of love to God and life for God, Paul now engages with the question concerning Christian liberties and this is where living for God comes in. Verses 7-13. to Known by Him, verses 1-3. to Sustained by Him, verses 4-6. to And living for Him. Tozer said there's scarcely anything so dull and meaningless as Bible doctrine taught for its own sake. Truth divorced from life is not truth in a biblical sense. Paul's not asking him here, what do you know? He's asking, how do you live? Verses 7 and 8 brings the Gospel to bear on those who have a weak conscience. Verses 9 to 12 brings the Gospel to bear on those who have a stronger conscience. Verse 7 and 8, weak people and Gospel truth. As I mentioned, there were temples all over Corinth, scattered all across the city. Their officials in these various temples would make sacrifices, and on occasion the temple would hold a feast with the remains of those sacrifices, and the people would be invited to partake in a discounted meal. Some of the Christians thought, hey, this is uh, good stewardship, right? It's a low-budget dinner for the whole family, kind of kids eat free night. Why not? After all, these idols are simply a figment of people's imagination. These gods aren't real. Let's go to the buffet. Others thought, how could we partake in the worship of false gods when Christ alone is our mediator by eating the thing that was sacrificed to these pagan deities? Doesn't this defile us if we eat what they offer? Now here's the deal. These are matters of conscience. Meaning for some, these behaviors are permissible. God does not disavow them. And for others, they are not permissible. It would be sinful. So how do we know when it's permissible and how do we know when it's sinful? Now that is a good question and that's what Paul deals with in the final portion of this chapter. You could say what he's writing to them is the law of love. Love to our fellow brother or sister. This is where the Christian life is lived every single day. That's why I started with not what do you worship, but how and why. If you worship the one true God, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the how you worship is answered in how you treat His people. The why you do it is the issue of love. God tells us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but consider one another is more important than yourself. In verse 7 and 8, isn't this what we get? However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And then he applies the Gospel, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. Here's what Paul's saying to the weak. 
He's telling them who refrain from eating meat in, in the temple sacrificed idols. What he's saying to them is he's telling the weak, don't do it. Don't eat it. But he's also making crystal clear that indulging or refraining, verse 8, does not affect your standing with God. Notice how the gospel is applied in the verse. Verse 8, food is not going to commend you to God. You're not worse if you don't eat it. You're not better if you do eat it. It's neutral. Verse 6 teaches there's only one mediator, the Lord Jesus. So to the weak, Paul applies the gospel truth that Christ is the only adequate mediator between us and God. So then he speaks to the strong. And he says in verses 9-12, to the application of gospel truth is Christ's self-humbling and His relinquishing of His rights for the good of others. You see it in verse 9 and following. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Do you see what he's done? To the strong who are not violated in their conscience by eating the meat sacrificed to the idols in the temple, He's applying the pattern of Christ. To the weak, He applies the Gospel. Jesus is the only mediator. The food has no bearing on your standing with God. To the strong, He applies Christ's pattern. The issue of love to your brothers and sisters. This is really the nub of the question. Should you relinquish your privileges for the pleasure of another? To answer that question, Paul wants you to think about the pattern of Jesus. No one relinquished more privilege to bring greater and lasting pleasure to others than Jesus. He who was rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake becamest poor. Do you see that the light of the Gospel is the illumination that Paul shines on the issue. Under the light of the Gospel, it's unthinkable to exploit our privileges selfishly in a way that causes our brother or sister, verse 9, to have a stumbling block in front of them, verse 11, to be ruined, and verse 12, to sin against Christ. Although there is no such thing as another God out there, it's just simply the figment of others' imagination, every other deity is but a mirage, that is true. Paul does say that behind all these idol sacrifices, in chapter 10, verse 20, there are demonic powers. Evil. And you need to be aware that if you go and eat that meat, if it doesn't violate your conscience, that's not sin for you, but you might be putting a stumbling block in front of your brother Or your sister, verse 11 says, you would be destroying the one for whom Christ died. Ruining them. He pulls out the big gun, doesn't he? This is somebody that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Be careful how you use your Christian liberty because you might ruin them. This word ruin is used in Matthew to talk about the wineskins that burst. It's not talking about eternal perishing. It's talking about wounding them deeply. It's talking about in Luke 15, perishing with hunger, or in James chapter 1, a flower flower that fades away. 
Paul's saying, do you want to ruin someone that way or do you want them to flourish and blossom and grow in their fellowship with Jesus? Giving up privileges for the sake of the other's lasting pleasure. And in verse 12 he says, to do such a thing would be to sin against Christ. One commentator said, to wound a member of Christ is to wound Christ. To sin against one of His own is to sin against the One to whom He belongs. Just sit in this truth for a moment. Make it your meditation for a month or two or ten. See if there be any hurtful way in me, O Lord. And lead me in the way everlasting. Paul's clearly representing himself as one whose conscience is clear to eat meat. He infers that in verse 13. If it causes my brother's stomach, I won't do it anymore. Implication, he's been doing that. But in this passage, he's not teaching believers to do what is permissible. He's teaching them to do what's profitable. In chapter 6, he says, you can do anything, just don't be mastered by it. So long as Scripture doesn't forbid it. Here he's saying it's not about you, it's about them. Unlike chapter 6, the question's not what's profitable for me. The question now in chapter 8 is what's profitable for you? Paul's teaching the principle of incarnate love, Christ-like love, Christ's life coursing through my veins, His sacrificial life being laid down, as it were, again and again through me for the good of His people. Do you want to live a thrilling life? Here's the answer for how you can do it. Do you want to be exhilarated with joy? Do you want to know, as we sing, the deep, deep love of Jesus? Do you want to be assured again and again of God's love for you? Here's the Bible's answer. Join Jesus in voluntarily laying down your life and your rights for the everlasting joy of others in Christ. This is where Paul ends and where we'll conclude. The liberty of love. Verse 13. This is what it looks like to live for God. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause my brother to stumble. For the duration of my walk with Christ, especially as I seek to serve God's people, not only in a pastoral role, I'm a church member before I'm a pastor, I mean just as a brother in Christ, for the duration of my walk with Jesus, especially, especially as I seek to serve God's people, I feel as if the Lord has been asking me a 20 plus year rhetorical question. And the question the Lord seems to be whispering in my ear, not with guilt, but with grace, is what does love require? What does love require in this moment? What would love look like? Paul doesn't renounce his liberty altogether. By verse 13, he doesn't mean I'm not going to eat meat again. He's saying if it would cause you to stumble, I won't do it. There may be other contexts where he would. He doesn't renounce his liberty altogether. That would be a violation of the teaching in the verses right above this. But he does temper his liberties in view of the best interest of others. His brothers, his sisters. So are you ready for the answer to the question, can you do it? Your liberties in Jesus. The issues that the Bible is not black and white on. This is sin, this is not. The issues that are in the middle. Your liberties in Jesus 
are more for them than for you. Living for our God by joining Jesus in living for the everlasting joy of others in Jesus is the greatest thrill on earth. That's why David Livingstone, missionary to Africa, charted the way for many others to come behind him and bring the gospel to places where it had never yet advanced. Was asked at the end of his life, how did you do it? How did you make such a sacrifice? And Livingstone's famous answer is, I never made a sacrifice. What I get compared to what I give is not even a fair equation. Living for the joy of others in Jesus is the satisfaction that our liberties sometimes promise to give us. Others-oriented, self-forgetfulness, not self-indulgent, that's the blissful life. So our application would be threefold. Simple as I know how to put it, I start digging into texts like this and I start asking the so what question. Are we going to be any different when we leave this place? Am I? Here's the application. So long as Scripture does not forbid it, and so long as it does not injure your own or your brother's or sister's conscience, you are free to live your life in Jesus in all sorts of multifaceted ways that bring glory to God. Whether you eat or drink, that's food sacrifice titles. Do it all to the glory of God. If you can't do it to the glory of God and for the good of your brother or sister, don't. Which is why our church covenant says, we will avoid all drugs, food, drink, and practices which jeopardize our own or another's faith or bring unwarranted harm to our body. We get it out of this passage. Number two, be sure that you understand that asceticism will not commend you to God. This is what I mean. We often think that if we don't do a certain thing, God will like us more. Here's the gospel reality. Not only does God love you, He likes you. He has no buyer's remorse. And whether you add two things to your life or subtract two things from your life does not earn more points with Jesus. Anything we contribute, anything we contribute to our relationship with God in terms of being unified to Him as His child, anything we contribute, whether it's sacrificing a thing or adding a thing, anything we contribute only worsens our damnable predicament. If we can help God save us, He should not have sent Jesus. Asceticism is not going to make you better. Eating gobs of meat in the temple when they give the buffet for free isn't going to make you any better. Because there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So be sure that you ground your relationship with God in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The risen Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice to the Father. Finally, here's where we close. Fill in the blank. If blank causes my brother to stumble, I'll never do it again. Tom Triner said believers are to live out their love for Christ by imitating His sacrificial love for us. 
That's why I said the question of this chapter is how. If you want to show God you love Him, and you asked Him, how can I show you? He would write you passages like this one and the book of 1 John and so many other texts and the Gospels and the Epistles. He would take you back to the Old Testament prophets and to the creation narrative in Genesis. He would point you to the historical books of the Old Testament and all the wisdom literature to say, if you want to show me you love me, do it unto the least of one of these my brethren. If it causes my brother or sister to stumble, give it up. This is the way the New Testament text uh, tests the genuineness of our profession of faith. Do you love God's people more than you love yourself? If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from God. That the one who loves God should love his brother also. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Well, you've been brought face to face with the question of who's Lord of your life and what will you, what will you do with your liberties. And my prayer is that we all would say the law of love. The law of love. I'll love you more than I love me and I'll lay down my rights for your joy in Jesus. That's the gospel pattern. And I pray that that's the way we'll live. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, it's a blessing to be confronted with your word because we find time and again that there are situations in our life where we would, in our own carnal flesh, we would choose self over others. Creature comfort. But then we look up to heaven and we see sitting there by your right hand our risen, ascended Jesus who gave up everything for our joy. The one who had all the privileges of heaven sacrificed them all so that we could have fellowship with you to be brought into the faith and built up in you. So for Christ's sake, that we would look more like him. Cause us, Lord, to follow His pattern, to lay down our privileges so that others can have greater pleasure in Jesus. Let us be like Christ in this way, serving one another in love. And Father, we ask that any who are outside the gracious arms of Jesus would run to Him, turn to Him, flee to Him, find life and joy everlasting in Him. Father, thank You for the privilege to gather together under Your Word. Cause it to bear fruit and increase in our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.